So before I begin, I would like to begin with just a note about a linguistic choice that I'm making, which is to shift away from using the term Old Testament. And I'm doing this because, well, in part because as we were planning this series, Matthew and Aurelia and I had a conversation with a Jewish friend and she shared that many Jewish folks are uncomfortable when Christians call their sacred scriptures, which they call Torah and Tanakh, old. And that it feels sort of dismissive of their people's part in the story and of the sacredness of it to them. And like, you know, it's like, that was the old one and this is the newer, better one, you know, sort of is the implication. So she helped us see that and she helped us see some ways that we can, as a pastoral staff, be more inclusive and respectful with our language, which is right, always a part of our story. We change our words to change our hearts. And as we change our words, so our hearts change. Remember, um, Helen Keller said that uh, she, she she couldn't think until she had some language. Remember she said that? So in the spirit of loving and affirming and honoring my Jewish siblings, I've taken to calling it the First Testament, which is a term that I first noticed a womanist scholar using because... These stories don't belong only to Christianity. They are a shared resource among wisdom traditions, and we're all in this together, and we are beloved by God. So, we're beginning our summer series in which we are delving into some First Testament stories. And I do this with caution for a lot of reasons. The number one being, we can't read First Testament stories at face value from our cultural lens and perspective. These are ancient Mesopotamian stories that we have to do some work to understand. And I don't generally preach from the First Testament. This is because I'm in general interested in preaching the four gospel accounts of the life of Christ, in part because he's my pole star, but also because he doesn't do crappy things that I have to constantly qualify, you know? which like pretty much all the other biblical characters do because they're human, you know, and they're just like regular people, like even St. Paul. And Christ is sort of the one example that I, I feel okay about unequivocally following. Um, so th- that's all to say that I proceed with some caution into the First Testament because, um, well, with the expectation that I'm going to have to wade through some messy human behavior. And as difficult as that is, I think that interacting with these stories matters because it exercises our muscles for interacting with the stories that are happening now when we are still seeing messy and questionable human behavior. And we're seeing patterns of human ego and oppression and of scarcity mindset and of violence. So the world has changed a lot since ancient Israel became a nation, but we are still human and prone to the same maladies that they were. And we're encountering this story today in a very complex and fraught time in our history, which Forrest mentioned, in which, you know, the lines between right and wrong are more blurry and we have a lot of irons in our fire and we have a lot of things we're trying to accomplish so like right right now in this minute it's it's pride month and we're trying to celebrate that and elevate that and we're also um um 
watching and participating in Black Lives Matter and we're dealing with systemic injustices like police violence and wealth inequity and the prison industrial complex. And we're also, you know, we have an upcoming election and we have a pandemic that isn't getting better and we have an economic outlook that's not so good. So we have a lot of stressors and a lot of work to do. And we come to this text from the perspective of a stressed people. Some of us might even say we feel beleaguered. So here's how in general I personally regard the scripture as a whole. Both the Torah and the Tanakh, the First Testament and the Second Testament. I see it as a record of a small sliver of humanity trying to interact with the divine and often failing and misinterpreting and trying to figure out who they are. And I also see it as a story about the starts and stops on our way, on our collective way to peace, to what Christ calls the kingdom of God or what I like to call the commonwealth of heaven. And in these stories, which span literally multiple millennia, we witness a lot of humans who are trying to understand themselves in relation to the divine. And we witness humans who at various times are beleaguered and they haven't made it to true peace and neither have we yet. But we get to look back and learn from their stories as we press on to that goal. So, First Testament characters are often complex and difficult, and they're living in a context that is often profoundly violent and profoundly sexist, but, you know, not all bad. So often their first impulses are violent and sexist, just like ours are, even though they're kind of culturally alien to us in a lot of ways. And the character that I want to explore today, Gideon, is a complex character. He does some noteworthy things and he does some bad things later. He is one of what are called the judges of Israel, who scholars think were kind of like tribal chieftains who oversaw the loosely formed nation of Israel anywhere from 1500 BCE to 1000 BCE. But there are a lot of differing opinions on those dates. So I wonder what, aside from just recognizing the human condition, What helpful bits can we uncover together? So hopefully today I can call your attention to some items of interest. But before we dive into this story, I want to give you a little context. So Gideon's story is happening after the Hebrews have gained their liberation from the Egyptian pharaoh. Then they've spent 40 years wandering in the desert, led by Moses, searching for a promised land. They need a homeland. And after Moses dies, which remember he dies just at the edge of that promised land, right? He can see it in the distance. So Moses dies and the leadership of the people is passed on to Joshua, who then takes power and violently ousts the indigenous inhabitants of that land known as Canaan. Canaan is what we say in the South. So Joshua destroys them, kills everybody, and takes over. All right? Does that sound familiar? 
that sounds not unlike what happened here on this continent with the European colonists ousting the native peoples here and stealing the land and destroying their livelihoods and killing the majority of people. That sounds familiar, right? Those impulses repeat themselves, yeah? So after Joshua, there's this series of judges and of which Gideon is one. Okay, now I'm going to paraphrase some of Judges 6 and 7 for you. Here's what's happening. The nation of Israel is being oppressed by another power, the neighboring Midianites, who are stealing their seed and destroying their crops and food supplies, and Israel is impoverished and suffering as a result. They're crying out to God to be saved from this violent oppressor, which it's just so ironic because they just got done being the violent oppressor 40 years prior. And before that, they were wandering homeless in the desert for 40 years. And before that, they spent some generations being enslaved and oppressed by Egypt. So that's a cycle, isn't it? It's interesting how they ping pong back and forth between being oppressed and being the oppressor. In some ways, it's like they can't imagine anything else, but that kind of hierarchy that resonates for me today. I think that's a lesson for us today that we need to imagine a better way and get out of that cycle of oppressed and oppressor. You know, sometime later in the text, in the scriptures, we meet the prophet Isaiah who who had a good imagination. He had a better imagination. He was able to put language around what we now call the peaceable kingdom. He says, the lion will lay down with the lamb and the little child shall lead them and there won't be any war and everybody will have enough food to eat, etc." And then later, Jesus, who also has a good imagination, takes a lot of Isaiah's ideas and articulates them even more. And we're still working inside that imagination of the peaceable kingdom, the peaceable commonwealth. Okay, but back to Gideon. He does this good thing. He's kind of a nobody. But one day, he's out beating some wheat in a field. And an angel appears to him and he tells him, the angel tells Gideon, that he is commissioned to deliver Israel from their oppressor, Midian. All right, Gideon, it's all in you. It's all you, man. And Gideon responds by saying, what? Why me? I'm the least in my clan and my clan is the least of all the clans and I'm a nobody. You're going to have to give me a sign that you're for real, angel. Give me a sign, he says. So this is in Judges 6. The angel does. The angel, like, burns up some food with a holy fire. And Gideon believes and he realizes that it's really the angel of the Lord. And, of course, then he builds an altar there because that's what you're supposed to do anywhere, any where you accidentally meet with God, right? That's another First Testament lesson that I think we can take to heart. He gets the sign and he believes. So part of the problem in this moment for them is that the Israelites are worshiping other gods than Yahweh. Okay, this is another major theme and lesson of the First Testament. Yahweh seems to be always trying to tell them, I encompass everything. There is no need to look elsewhere. And of course, they have a hard time hearing that. And so do we. So that night, God says to Gideon, 
to go pull down an altar to this non-God the folks are preoccupied with. Okay, so I'm going to read from Judges a little bit for you. This is 625. Uh, That night the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold there in proper order. And then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, He does it by night. So Gideon is super scared to do this because he knows that it's going to make everybody mad and he does it in the dark of night and it does get him in trouble, but it makes God really happy and it gets him in such trouble. Like it would be like, like if I came along and disbanded the NFL or, or, or made online shopping disappear, or if I took away all the iPhones or or destroyed Fox News or something. Like, everybody would be really mad at me for taking away the non-gods that we were worshiping. Like, what are we going to do with our hand now? It's empty. I turn to the wise words of the Brazilian nonviolence theologian Dominique Barbet, who writes, he says, Still today, as in the age of Gideon, We have to destroy the altars of false gods where human energies are destroyed under Satan's sun, namely the unjust laws and social structures that turn the human being into a machine for production instead of being a creature in the image of God made to love and be loved. That is a word for us today, yes? That we are called to destroy false gods of unjust social structures. The false gods of consumerism and hierarchy and complacency. The false gods of racial inequity. The false gods, it's Pride Month, y'all. The false gods of cis-heteropatriarchy. The false god of gun worship. The false gods of economic gain to whom we sacrifice the sick and the immigrant and the poor and the uninsured. We take on unjust social structures because that is love in action. So Gideon and the folks, the Israelites, then they all realize that there's a horde of enemies encamped in a nearby valley, ready and waiting to obliterate them. And Gideon's getting a little antsy because remember what that angel told him. He said, you're going to liberate your people, man. It's, it's on you. So I want to call your attention to another part about Gideon's story that I've always admired and emulated in various ways over the course of my life. This is also in Judges 6, starting in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand as you have said, I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand as you have said. 
And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just one more. Let it be dry only on the fleece and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Does this, does this feel resonant to you? Okay, this guy is insecure. And he very audaciously asks God three times for a sign. He says, give me a sign, God. Am I hearing correctly, God? And God says, sure, no problem. I'm happy to offer reassurance to you, Gideon. Gideon is able to ask for and receive reassurance. And I have found this to be true in my own life, my friends. Every time I've asked the divine for reassurance, I've received it in some way or other. God has always been gracious to me in this way. And I think will be for you too. I think that you too can lay out a fleece and ask for a sign of reassurance. I believe that God loves us and is happy to work with us even when we feel like our faith is small or we're insecure. So this renews Gideon's confidence and he gathers his troops to get ready for war. But then God says some strange things. This is in chapter 7 now. God says, the troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their, into their hand. I'm sorry, did you say too many, God? Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever's fearful and trembling, let, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. 22,000 returned and 10,000 remained. Then God says, nope, still too many. Okay, I'm, I'm paraphrasing again. Send these guys down to the water to drink and watch and see how many of them lap the water like a dog and keep those ones. With the 300 that lapped, God says, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let the others go home. So poor Gideon has gone from an army of 22,000 down to 300. And he's supposed to attack a horde of enemies with 300 soldiers. I think this is so funny. Does this remind you of anybody? Does this remind you of somebody that you know? I think it reminds me of us. Like, our small but mighty community in the heart of Texas doing the work of peacemaking and radical inclusion. We have big problems to work on. We have hordes of people who think we're crazy for the work we do. We are less than 100 people, but I never worry that we are too small for big work. Our hearts are huge and warm and willing to get to it. And we are willing to self-educate. And we are demonstrating in this period of history that we are strong, even though we're small. So, spoiler alert. 
Gideon's tiny but mighty army wins. But wait till you hear how. Okay, there's some other stuff that happens, but you'll have to read that yourself because I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 16. After he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars, he said to them, look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. Okay, this is Gideon speaking, right? Look at me. When I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and all the men in camp ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army, and the army fled. (laughs) Y'all, it makes me laugh. This story really makes me laugh. These dudes did not even bring swords to a battle. They carry a trumpet and a jar and a torch. I think it's so funny. Look, there are plenty of other stories of the Hebrew people wiping out entire populations in very questionable ways, but this is not one of them. Here, these guys sneak up in the middle of the night and they scare them to death. What a story of nonviolent resistance smack dab in the middle of an otherwise pretty violent text. They just holler and smash some crockery and the horde of enemies turns tail. Like, what if we could holler and yell and smash some pots and wave some lights and all the racism would flee? That would be nice, right? In some ways, don't you see that that's what people are doing? They're in the streets, yelling and smashing some replaceable things and shining lights on unjust systems. It's messy and it's human. I mentioned before that I see the scripture as a record of a group of people's fits and starts on the path to true peace that we're still on. And I have to wonder, my friends, What is your jar? What systems do you have to smash in order to make way for something new? What is your trumpet? What is your noisemaker calling attention to injustice? What is your torch shining the light of truth onto this reality that is in desperate need of change? What are the tools with which you will work to accomplish nonviolent change making? Gideon goes on to do some questionable stuff. But in the end, Israel gets 40 years of peace under his leadership. 
And we can see such human frailty in his story, but also such resilience. And I don't know about you, but there is a spark in this story for me that I resonate with and I am inspired by. We can see the hand of the divine moving in unexpected ways through unexpected means and people. For through ways that we might, might judge, that we might have judgments about. We see the divine creating big change by way of humble and flawed yet determined people. People who have ordinary tools at their disposal. Like Gideon, we may be an ordinary person minding our own business, but miraculously awaken to the call of God to work toward the liberation of our people. Like Gideon, We have to destroy the altars of false gods and come back to the understanding that Yahweh encompasses everything. That's part of our work. Like Gideon, we can ask for and receive assurance. We can request a sign and receive it from God who is gracious to give it. Like Gideon and his tiny army, we are small but mighty, and we need never be dismayed by our small size. Like Gideon and his army, we are invited to use the nonviolent tools and symbols we have at hand, a a trumpet, a torch, an empty jar. In our case, perhaps, our voices, our votes, our advocacy, to liberate ourselves and our siblings who are oppressed and work to end the cycle of oppressed and oppressor. We can learn to embody divine love that needs no hierarchy. And we can do it with the imagination of Christ and the prophets, and also with the threads of this story in mind, the imagination of Gideon. Amen.